Father, we come before you. We bow our hearts before you, not just our heads. And we request the filling of your spirit that we might love as you love, that we might absorb the knowledge and that you would teach us as that is what you're known for, Lord, guiding and teaching us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you give us new insights into the gospel of Matthew, fresh things that are there, just like the scribe who brings out things that are old and things that are new. I pray pray that you would enliven our hearts with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew, of course, Matthew is written to the Jews, and Matthew presents Jesus as king. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the main word is fulfilled, because it was written to the Jews, and and Matthew, or Levi, as he's also known, he was the one that told them all these prophecies are fulfilled. And it's about what Jesus said. In Matthew... There are three great sermon passages that are in there. There's the Sermon on the Mount in 5 and 6, and then there's the parables in Matthew chapter 13, and then there's the Olivet Discourse, which deals with the end times. And we'll spend some time on each one of those because God wants us to know specifically what Jesus said and what he meant with what he said. Then there's Mark, which is written for the Romans, and he portrays Jesus as the obedient servant, and it was about what Jesus did. And if you look at that, you have a lot of connecting words in there, or a few connecting words, but they repeat over and over, like Jesus did this and, and now Jesus went over there and immediately he did this. And so you hardly get a breath and you go from point to point to point. It's almost like a motion picture where another gospel is like a snapshot. But this one, our market just moves and moves and moves. It's probably the first gospel ever written. Luke was written to the Greeks. Luke presents Jesus as man or the son of man. And it was about how Jesus felt. Because the word that comes up in there is compassion. And Jesus had compassion on the multitude. And so you see him as a loving savior. And then John was written for the church. And some people say for the whole world, it presents Jesus as God. And it was about who Jesus was. Along with, if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, it says uh, that Jesus is not one of the angels. But specifically, John spells out that he was the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so, getting back into Matthew. Matthew, we saw the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit... And then there are other baptisms, which I talked about before. There's water baptism, there's suffering, there's fire, there's for the dead, there's into the cloud, there's into the sea, and there's into Moses. But the next one we're going to look at, since John the Baptist talked about it, was being baptized by fire. A a disciple is for baptism with fire as smelting is for metal. Now, I don't know how many videos you've watched of a, a... a smelter. Sometimes these things are huge. It takes a crane with this big bucket. The bucket can be as wide as this stage, and it's filled with molten molten metal that is in there. And sometimes they mix iron and they mix, uh, uh, not chrome, they get chrome from that, but they mix nickel uh, in there. They'll take zinc and they'll throw different metals in there to forge particular types of steel. And then they boil it, they heat it up so hot, it's a liquid form, and they skim off the slag off the top. Now, if you, for anyone who's ever taken metal shop, 
when you do some welding, there's always slag that develops, and you've got to crank that stuff off there. You chip it off, and that is just ugly stuff. You take that out. That's not the purity. Same thing with gold. They heat up gold, and on the top forms this slime, this impurity or silver, and they screed that stuff off to where you get the pure gold, the pure silver, or the pure platinum. So there is this idea of baptism, and it has the idea of being placed into or dipped into fire just as one would dip something into water or someone into water. Now, I don't know what kind of picture that paints for you, but it's kind of hot. It's kind of destructive. But on the other hand, it's kind of purifying if you think of gold and silver. And God often uses that metaphor when it comes to the idea of being baptized by fire. So what is the purpose of baptism with fire? Well, we know three guys who went through an actual baptism in real fire. Now, most of you know who those guys are. Who are they? That's right. You got the Daniel and the lion's den all through the book of Daniel. These guys were thrown into the fire. Now, would you volunteer to go into a pit of fire? Would you volunteer at the cost of your confession of Christ? See, that's what they were doing. They would not bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You know, here's, here's the throng, the multitude. When the trumpet blows, they're all supposed to bow down and worship this image which is out there. And you look out in the multitude, and you see these three guys standing. What? They haven't bowed down. Don't you know you'll be thrown into the furnace if you don't bow down? So Nebuchadnezzar says, get those guys up here. And he likes these guys. Right? He, he appointed them as leaders over the people there in Babylon. And so shows up, and I've listened to the audio on this, like an audio Bible, and it seems like Nebuchadnezzar is a little mad, but I don't think in the text he's mad. I think he turns and goes, come on, guys. Now, just do this. When the trumpet blows, I want you to bow down, all right? And they said, oh, great king, live forever. We don't have to debate with you on this thing. This is Bill's version. We don't have to debate with you on this thing. We're not going to bow down. And if you throw us into the furnace, hey, you throw us into the furnace. And God can deliver us if he chooses to do so. But if he doesn't, that's okay. Then Nebuchadnezzar got mad. He goes, heat that thing up! And he heated it up so hot. Have you guys ever been next to a furnace that is just scorching? Maybe you've had um, pottery classes, ceramics. There's this process called raku. And what you have to do is you heat that furnace up to about 3,000 degrees. It's a kiln. And then you have to put on this protective gear, and you have to open the door to the kiln, and it's just, it's just blazing. It is red hot. And you take your nice little pottery, and you put it in there with some tongs. And you're going, you stick that thing in there, and you've got your protective gear, and you can still feel the heat. You're going, oh, this is hot. Right? You put that in there, and then you're supposed to grab things like hay and straw, and you throw the hay and straw onto the ceramic piece, and it makes it crack, and the crack gets the smoke in it 
from the weeds, from the straw that you put in there, and it creates this effect on Raku. And what you have to do, you stick it on there, then you shut it for a few minutes, and it's just burning away, everything's burning off. Then you got to open it back up and take that thing out. And it is scorching. If you were in front of that thing without that protective gear, all your hair would melt off your face, your skin would be cooked, you'd look like chicken on a barbecue is what you would look like. But these guys... This furnace was heated up probably five, 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the guys who threw them in died because it was so hot. Nebuchadnezzar said, throw those guys in. And so they grabbed them and then they just turned into toast. As they threw them in there, the guys land, oh, they get on the ground. All of a sudden, everything just burns up that's holding their hands. Their clothes aren't burning. They're walking around going, cool, it's kind of like a jacuzzi. It's hot, you know, or it's not hot. It's just kind of flowing everywhere. Their hair was probably going up. Their beards were probably going up. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the midst of that baptism of fire. And Nebuchadnezzar can't believe his eyes. He looks at that and goes, what? How many guys did we throw in there? And they go, three. Oh, king. How come I see four? Jesus Christ showed up in the midst of the baptism of fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar turned to them and said, you guys, come out of there. And he said, the one that was also in there looked like the son of man in all of his brilliance walking around in there. So the guys come out and go, hey, king, what's happening? And he couldn't believe, oh, the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worship, he is the God of all heaven. And he changed it. He was a convert right then. You know, to see that God would do such a thing. But that's an actual baptism by actual fire. Now, many Christians, after Jesus Christ was here, were not so lucky. They were actually set on fire on stakes. And Nero would ride through his garden on his chariot, it is said by some historians, completely naked, screaming at the top of his lungs. And Christians were not crucified. Well, they were crucified too, but they were burned at the stake. Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about some of these guys, and that is certainly a baptism by fire. But it's not always a literal fire. It also refers to, as I said before, a judgment and a purification. There's a judgment that will come on believers, and there's several judgments that will happen. But it's a fire as judgment, as betrayed in Scripture, and also a fire as purification or refinement. Now, there is a fire as judgment for the believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, it talks about this time where there is going to be, and it's a metaphor, there's going to be wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. They're all mixed together on this pile. And fire is set to that pile, and whatever is burned up, whatever remains, is our reward. Our reward is given to us for the things that we do, say, believe here on earth. We get one chance to do this and to build up for ourselves a treasure in heaven. If we are lax on it, we might have a ring when we get done. If we are given our full effort to serve in the Lord, your pile might be as big as this room or as big as a stadium. And I'm speaking metaphorically. I don't think you're going to get up there and say, look at all the jewels I got. It, it's not going to be like that. God is probably going to 
bless you with honor and glory and position and responsibility. And you will, we all will, happily take it on. We will not say, oh, that's so much. We'll say, yoo-hoo, yeah, let's go. Oh, it's great. We're going to think it is wonderful, like having treasure. But the, the bad works, the wood, hay, and stubble, are everything that we have done for selfish motivation. We have decided to go out and do whatever we want to do for us. It's like I was talking last week. I didn't get into Matthew, and I was talking about we who are in church. We don't come to church so that we get ministered to. We're supposed to come to church so that we might minister. That's the point of being a mature Christian. A young Christian doesn't look at it that way. An immature Christian whines, complains, moans, wants to do things that benefit themselves rather than giving up themselves, offering their bodies as living sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That's the immature Christian. God calls us onto maturity. And so when we arrive for worship, we're here for worship. Why do we come for worship? Or why do we not come for worship? It shouldn't be for ourselves because I don't want to. I don't want to do this. We arrive here for the sake of Christ, for him, not for us. And why do we sing together as a group? For the sake of Christ and for the sake of each other. How nice does it sound when everybody is singing and there's harmonies. I can remember sitting where you are in church and I would pick out these harmonies and go, oh, that sounds so cool. All right, praise the Lord. They can sing. It's what, and everybody sings together. It's great. But if somebody misses that, they're acting selfishly. And we need not to act selfishly. We want to make sure we're acting in accordance with what God wants us to do that pleases him and not ourselves. And that is difficult. That is the task for all of us in here. Now, when it comes to this fire's judgment for believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 through 13, there is also the judgment for believers that's referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And it says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is where this 1 Corinthians chapter 3 takes place. It's where we stand up before God and this judgment comes and the fire comes to the pile, metaphorically speaking, and that is when God gives us a reward. So that's what the judgment for the believer, the judgment by fire is. Then there is this judgment for unbelievers. Isaiah 66 verse 16 says, For with fire and with his sword the Lord will execute judgment upon men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. And so this baptism of fire or for with fire, the Lord is going to judge. You know, prophets have this ability. Some prophets have had this ability to speak fire out of their mouths. And that's going to happen with the 144,000 in the book of Revelation in chapter 7 and chapter 14, or excuse me, specifically the two prophets that are going to come are going to be able to call down fire from heaven and they will consume people. What a witness that will be at that time. And then this judgment for the unbeliever, First, it's Isaiah 66, 16, which refers to as fire. But there's an ultimate judgment which is going to come, which is the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And if anybody's name was not found written in the book of life, they were cast into the lake of fire. And it, it, I believe it's metaphorical because it's going to be dark. People, you've heard it said before, yeah, I'm going to hell and we're going to have a party down there. I'm sorry, you are going to be alone and it's going to be dark, 
not you, because all you are saved, right? Each one of you has accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, so you have no fear of this, right? Amen? Amen? That's right. That's what we're supposed to do because we know there's a judgment to come and we want to avoid it and hot and alone and dark and all of that. And so he has warned us about this. But for the unbeliever, remember, this goes on forever. I've already given you the scriptures on that. It's Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, 25, verse 46, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It is forever that that takes place. So there is also this idea, a baptism of fire is like refinement for the believers. There's three times in scripture listed, there's probably more. But for the Levites, in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So he's not talking about dipping them in fire, even though it's called a baptism of fire. He's going to come with fire. It's this idea of something more that's meaningful to them. And the Jews as well. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 and 9. It says, And the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, and one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like the silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. And they say that after the refining. They don't say that before the refining. They say this after the refining. Also the disciples of Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this baptism of fire, or this trial by fire, leads to us praising God. And remember, Peter was saying, think it not strange that this fiery trial has overtaken you. And when we get into a fiery trial, if we can get out of it, great. But most of the time, we cannot. We, can, we find no way out. Everywhere we turn, the trial follows us. It's kind of like tying a torch to a fox's tail. The fox tries to get away from it, cannot get away from it. It follows him wherever he goes. And the Lord has determined that for us to refine us like silver so that it may result in us praising God. It seems to be that's the only way that we'll do it in spirit and in truth. We have to go through this refining fire. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say at the pastor's conferences, Before a man can be used by God in ministry, he must be broken. And he told that to all the pastors. Most of them said, yeah, a couple of them are like, what? I don't get that. What what do you mean? Doesn't God just want to bless me? Yeah, he wants to bless us with fire. And that turns us into the people we're supposed to be. So that means there are trials ahead. Isaiah 48, 10 says, Behold... I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And so that's the purpose. This idea of purifying us, God puts us through these trials. And for us, it seems 
onerous. It seems egregious. It seems full of weight and we don't like it. And relationships deteriorate and God moves us and finances go bad and then our health, it starts to deteriorate and we go, what? What is going on here, God? And that doesn't count persecution from those who are outside. Now, we don't really have that problem too much in this country. Uh, People will say things, but still in this country, there are a lot of believers like Joy Behar. I don't know if you follow the news or not, but on her show, she made fun of Mike Pence and his Christian faith. And Mike Pence, he accepted her apology, but he wanted her to apologize to all Christians. And she wouldn't do it. You know, so we have light and momentary suffering in this country. It's not so around the world. Around the world, you can die for your faith if you open your mouth at the wrong time, if you try to witness for Jesus Christ. And so these are the types of things. And God calls Christians to those parts of the world. Now, are you ready to go? If God says to you, I want you to go to Yemen or Qatar. I want you to go to Saudi Arabia and I want you to pass out tracts at the mosque. Would you do that? If, if God said, you, I want you to go, would you say, send me, I'll go. Another person in here might say, but I might be persecuted. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake. We're going to get to that. That's Matthew chapter 5. And we don't want that kind of blessing. No, I'll, I'll, I'll take it right here. I'll witness to my community and I'll be just fine. I, I promise, Lord, I'll do that. But if the Lord puts it on your heart and he pesters you, just remember Jonah. Jonah was called to Nineveh. What did he do? Went the other way. And the guys, I just listened to it on the audio. You know, he's in the boat, and the boat is just being tossed all over the place. He's going in the opposite direction, and all the guys in the boat, they turn to their gods. Why, oh God, have you brought this upon us here? And he looks at all of them, and he goes down below decks, and he goes to sleep, a deep sleep. He's just snoring away down there. He's having a good time. Captain comes down. What are you doing? Wake up and call to your God. Maybe he'll deliver us from this. And he goes, I know why this is happening. And they go, why? Why is this happening? Because my God told me to go to Nineveh and I chose to go the other way. Well, oh no, don't tell us that. And so they threw everything overboard and they're trying to maintain it. And he goes, you know, if you throw me overboard, all this will end. They threw him overboard and immediately the storm calmed. And of course he got eaten by a fish and burped up on the beach. And the Lord took him back to Nineveh. And that whole story that's in there, you know, it's an incredible story that's there. But this idea of being a witness, we're supposed to go out and be that witness if God calls us to. The only thing is, you need to ask God. We all do. God, do you want me to witness to somebody? Guess what? He'll answer you. And when he does, because if you're listening patient, the Lord says, if you seek after me with all your heart, I will let myself be found by you. So if you go, God, I really want to do your will. If you want me to go somewhere, if you want me to witness somebody, just let me know and I'll do it. I'm in. I'm fully in. In the pool, submerged, baptism by water or fire, whatever you want, Lord, I'm there. That's where the Lord wants us. If we don't do it willingly, guess what happens? Fall on the rock and be broken or the rock will fall on us and crush us. 
all these metaphors are not very pleasing and appealing, are they? But that is what the Lord says about it. He goes, this is perfect for us. This will refine us into who we need to be. Then why baptize the believer with fire? And we know this, affliction, trials, testings are sent in order to purify and to prepare us. Now, how should we view these trials? Philippians 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Now, what this means is, well, this is how we should look at it. If a trial comes our way and we are burdened and it is hard, we tell people, please pray for me. I'm just going through a trial. But if you go through the trial and then you start complaining about the trial, remember Job? When have I sinned? I have kept the commandments of my Lord and sacrificed for my children and all this stuff he was doing to justify himself. Remember at the end, God says, stand up. I'm going to talk to you and teach you a thing or two. Were you here when I set the foundations of the earth? What about Leviathan? Can anybody take him down? And he just goes through this long lecture. And so when we're going through something like that, even though accusers may come to us, we don't have to defend ourselves. The Lord is our defender, Scripture says. And when we're going through that, we don't have to complain. Woe is me, Job. Woe is me, I am undone. Not just, you know... It's a trial, light and momentary suffering. And you can say that to yourself because the glory which lies ahead is going to be so much greater than anything we can endure down here. But it is a privilege for us to suffer. And we must transform our minds to be able to accept this kind of teaching from none other than Jesus himself. And it is a difficult teaching. Asking always to be in the will of the Lord by accepting suffering if he calls us to it. Now, all of us are going to be called to it in one way or another, to one degree or another. And God says in his scripture, if you go through the history of the Old Testament, when Israel was doing well, they were blessed. The Lord's hand was upon them. He, he restored anything, a canker worm would eat, which means their harvest would be uh, destroyed. He, he says specifically that he brought plagues upon the Israelites in the form of mildew on their plants, also in the form of droughts. God said that that's a judgment. Now, for us, we rarely today, if we look at our country, like, for instance, the state of California, I look at the state of California, and if I was going to give it a grade, how healthy is the state of California? It is on life support. You know, like this, uh, and I, I know I'm getting off a little bit here, but it's to make a point. We are in debt $151.1 billion to CalPERS. CalPERS is the retirement for the state employees. That's police That's fire. Uh, Teachers, I think they have their own union, but it's the government employees that are there. How are you going to make up $151 billion when you're spending $77 billion on a speeding train going to nowhere to some desert rats out there? Now, do you think that that is part of a judgment? Or do you think that's just stupidity and foolishness? I think the stupidity and foolishness is the judgment. And we are set 
to go bankrupt, who knows when, but it's down the road. Our leaders that we have voted in because we want things have given us what we wanted against God's will. Same thing with the rest of the country. Is the rest of the country being blessed or are there pockets that are being blessed and pockets that are being cursed? You can look around. It used to be in times of old that people would turn to God and say, why is this happening to us? God tells us in his word, if the Israelites repented, he blessed them and he blessed them with good leaders that made good decisions. If we live for ourselves, even as Christians, we get what we deserve in the form of judgments, whether it's plague to our crops, whether it's bad leaders, whether it's bad infrastructure, the people who run things, not just the leaders, all of that is a judgment, and that's how we're supposed to look at it. And if we look at it that way, we say, God, forgive us as a people. Remember, Daniel interceded for the nation, the Israelites that were in exile. He said, we have sinned. It's not just Father or Daniel saying, Father, they have sinned. Please forgive them. He said, no, we have sinned as a nation. And that's why they went into exile for 70 years. So God will judge the unbelievers and the believers with fire. For one, it means their destruction, the unbeliever. For the believer, it means purification and holiness. Now there are judgments, specifically five of them, that are dealt out in Scripture. The first one, of course, I've already talked about, is the judgment seat of Christ for the believers. It's called the Bema seat. And that's the word in the Greek. That's where the believers, we get our reward at that time. Then there's the judgment of regathered Israel. Israel has been brought back into the land. The Lord has told us that those people, that generation that is in the land, and in Matthew chapter 25, it says, that generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And it's talking about the tribulation period. So the nation that is in Israel right now is going to remain until the tribulation is over. And after that, God is going to set up his throne, Jesus will, right inside the Temple Mount area. In the temple, he's going to come back on the Mount of Olives, walk across and be over there, according to Zechariah. And he's going to go into the temple and take a seat and rule from there. And water's going to flow out of there and it's going to go towards the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea will once again flow into the ocean and the Red Sea down there. And it will be stocked with fish. And there'll be so much fish. Abundant life is going to be down there. That's what is lying ahead. But the Israelites must go through this time of tribulation, this time of Jacob's trouble. And it is a judgment on them. And most of them will die just like most of the Christians will die during that time. We've been raptured, but the Christians, the ones who become Christians during the tribulation period, will be rescued, but rescued by probably losing their head, going to the altar of God. God resurrects them, and they come back and rule and reign with God for a thousand years here on earth. So that judgment is coming to regathered Israel, the Israel we see now. That country will suffer during the tribulation period, which is God's judgment. It says this even in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. And he will deliver Israel from the hands of the enemy. Then there's the judgment of the living nations. <clears throat> now this one, it, we are in a nation. The nation is called the United States of America. 
how we treat Israel is going to be judged. Every generation of every nation is going to be judged. Like, for instance, how will the nation of Syria or Lebanon or Jordan or Egypt or Iran or Iraq be judged in how they treat Israel? They are going to suffer. What about us? Are we going to be judged by that? Let me read you something here. In those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them. Concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations, and pay attention to this, and they divided up my land. Have we had a hand in that? You know the Gaza Strip over there, the West Bank? All of that, we have decided that's best. We'll make that Palestinian, and the rest you can have as Israel. The last administration wanted to divide it up even more. They wanted to go back to the borders of 1967, dividing up the land. God says specifically, he will judge the nations that do that. That's us, ladies and gentlemen. We better not have a single hand in trying to divide up the nation of Israel. Look what else they do. These nations. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes and they sold girls for wine that they might drink. How bad is sex trafficking in the United States? In San Diego, it is horrendous. Just talk to Les and Marjorie. They're involved in that. And it's all across the country. Ladies and gentlemen, that is us. And so we want to make sure as a nation, now we get judged individually, but as a nation too, I don't know how God works this out, but he clearly declares that he's going to judge the nations as well. So how that works out, I I am not sure, but there's surely a judgment coming. Then there's the judgment of fallen angels. Jude chapter 6, or excuse me, Jude verse 6 says, and the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And this is probably the great white throne judgment. And then there's the judgment for the unbelieving dead, which I have already referenced in the book of Revelation. It's talking about the great white throne judgment. So this, this judgment is coming. And for us, we don't have any need to fear judgment because we have received the mercy of God. And because we have passed through the mercy of God, we have avoided the judgment. And that's the great thing. And if you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament combined, as I went through uh, just a few weeks ago, the wrath of God, this judgment is ubiquitous. It is over everything. It is over the creation of God. And we're planning. Our folly is is just so big. You know, we are planning the smartest people on this planet are planning for us to get off why because we're killing our own planet they, they make movies about this stuff how we have to get off because we're killing the planet because we breathe and there are cows that have gas and we're gonna die because of all of that and they they have this panic thing and they say we got to go to the planets and so they're looking in our own solar system where can we go we can inhabit the moon right 
Go to the, there's water on the moon. It's in a crater. The problem with the moon is all the dust that is on the moon, it's like glass shards. The astronauts, when they went there, they got these cold symptoms because they were bringing this dust into their lungs and it was glass shards and it was kind of cutting up their lungs. How long do you think you can survive that? Not very long. Then they say, let's go to Mars. Mars is inhabitable. We can live there. There is no molten metal core to keep the radiation from getting at you. You would have to live underground, way underground, never see the light of day. What a wonderful existence. And it's worse than Antarctica. The temperature that is there, there's 15 pounds per square inch of pressure on us here on this earth. You get up there, there's less than one. What do you think it's going to be like up there? Oh, we're at Mars, a paradise. There is no place like earth. They're looking around Saturn. All oh, these moons that are around Saturn, there's water ice, and it's just a wonderful place to be, and we can bore through the water ice, and we can find life, and we can take this ice and turn it to hydrogen and oxygen, and we can breathe, and we can have fuel, and this is going to be so wonderful. The only problem is Jupiter and Saturn, they put off all this radiation that will fry them like chicken. I mean, it's just bad. And then they're looking to these far out galaxies. They found this star. It's only 39 light years away. And it has like seven planets around it that are in the Goldilocks zone. They think they can actually inhabit the only problem. 39 light years away, that's all. With our technology, it'll take 1.5 million years to get there. It's like God cordoned us off. And he said, no, sorry, you're stuck. This is it. You're staying here until the judgment comes. And we want to avoid it. Get off the planet. We're going to die. No, we are going to die. We are. But those who believe, we get new bodies. Hallelujah. Oh, this is going to be great. I get excited about this stuff. Let's go on. So we head to chapter 4. Now remember, as we're going through 1 through 4, this is the story about God becoming man and how it began. We had the birth of Jesus, his lineage, his ancestry, his announcement, the recognition of his arrival, the angels, the magi, John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, the baptism by fire. Then we're going to go in Matthew 4, 1, the initiation of Jesus or his temptations. Later we'll hit the place he lived and ministered, the selection of the first disciples, and the type of scope and ministry. Then we go into the big sermons that he has given us. And so this temptation... You know, what is temptation like? I don't know if you ever sought to really get some understanding about temptation. But temptation is like this. (laughs) You know, as I look at you, you're going like that, right? What is this? It's a lure, right? Now, if you go fishing... Now, I've been under the water and I've seen these things, specifically a barracuda. Now, these barracuda, now, I, I have been diving in these areas where these barracuda, I think they call them oh no, because when you see it, you go, oh no, <laughs> because I, I was just floating out there once, I was uh, snorkeling actually, and I turned around And there is this barracuda. He had to be six or seven feet long. And his teeth, I could see his teeth. And he was from me to this plant. And I turned around and go, whoa, whoa, hello, you know. And he's just looking at me. You know, he said, can I eat you? Can I not? 
that, that's what he's asking. But if you see these other ones, uh, these other barracuda when I've been diving, they, you'll see them in the distance. You know, they're just kind of going. And then they decide they want to check you out. And so they slowly meander over to you. And I've seen these barracuda come up within three feet and just look at you. I mean, they're just, they're just looking at you like this. And going, what is going on? But a barracuda, you take something like this and you go through the water. It goes, Hoo! and it, it just squirrel. It takes off. It just starts going for it. I mean, something shiny that goes through the water and it is tempted to go after it. Now, with this type of lure, what comes with it? A hook. And so something enticing for the barracuda comes along and it goes, I want that. It bites it. And what happens? Death. That's how temptation comes to us. This is specifically... Spelled out in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he follows lures and gets hooked. No, it says, and he is dragged away and enticed. It says dragged away. A fisherman is dragging that fish out of the water. It says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. And the fish is gone, I shouldn't have gone for that. But by his nature, his nature is to go for the fish. Our nature is to go for sin. And God says, don't Go for the lure. Don't do it. He says, it's out there. And we'll see these shiny things go by. Go, oh, what was that? Just like your eyes did. When I put that thing up there, you, oh, what, what, what is that? And with sin, we'll be attracted to it. Now, this is what Jesus went through. When it says Jesus was tempted, did he want it? For instance... How many people in here are tempted by eating snails? <laughs> Not at all, right? How many people are tempted by chocolate? Oh, me! Oh, sign me up! Dark chocolate, melted chocolate, milk chocolate, all oh, chocolate, the strawberries and chocolate. I mean, we, it's just like we get tempted by that. So, oh, I shouldn't, but I will. You know, and you go for whatever it is. That is how Jesus was tempted, and he didn't go for it. He wanted it. Otherwise, if he didn't want it, it's not a temptation. We say, well, I don't want that. That's not a temptation for me. Are you kidding? I don't want it. No way. It's not for me. Jesus wasn't experiencing that. Jesus, in his flesh, was experiencing temptation. I'm going to develop this further next week. I want you to read ahead in Matthew chapter 4. Go through it, being tempted to do evil or being tempted to be complacent, being tempted not to study, being tempted not to go to a study, being tempted to do things of the world. And the Lord says, resist. May the Lord give you the power and the strength by His Spirit working in you to say no to those things that we are attracted to. And I know he will if you submit to him.
If you ask, if you say, please, Lord, help me in this temptation. And he promises to deliver us if we are willing to fight the fight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the insight that is there. We thank you for showing us how this world operates and what is in front of us and what is harmful and what is good. For you are good. You have given us what is wonderful, what is pleasing. You are the fountain that brings all blessing. We give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.